I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Hey guys, Steve here. You are listening to one of our original 26 episodes. If you've listened to any of our new episodes, you're going to notice that we're sounding a little different in these ones. Yeah, there's a reason for that. There is. They've been remastered. They have been remastered. Because they had a really annoying hum. Yeah, I mean, a huge thanks to uh, listener James for doing almost all of the legwork on this yes. thing. Yeah. You'll also notice if you had listened to what we're calling the Lost 26 episodes before and you're re-listening now, the music and sound effects are gone. Yes, yeah. we've, we've gone back to straight audio. So be warned, we sound a little different today than we do in what you're about to listen to. Yeah. Enjoy. Uh-huh. Bye. Okay, bye. Thinking sideways. I don't understand. Stories of things we simply don't know the answer to. Well, hey there. I'm Steve, and as always, on my right is Devin. Hi. And on her right is Joe. Hello. Also your left. Also my left. And when you put us in a room and you slap a couple mics in front of us, you get Thinking Sideways Pod, the Uh podcast. Yay! 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 Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, this week we've uh, we've got a bit of a special show for you. I just I want to give everybody kind of an idea how things work behind the scenes to then let you know why this is such an important one. So, what we typically do is we get together and we talk about different topics, things we want to put on the show, and sometimes one rings with all of us, and we each want to go ahead and research it and host that one, and then we got the great idea. Well, what do you know? Why don't we go ahead and just do this as a big show with the group? So we're doing that today. It's a pretty exciting idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really is. Uh, so what are we going to talk about? We are going to talk about the Spanish flu, otherwise known as the influenza pandemic of 1918. Okay, uh, before you go rushing to Wikipedia, let me just tell you wh- what it is that the flu, the pandemic was. The 1918 flu pandemic actually ran or appeared in about January of 1918 and didn't go away officially until December of 1920. So the, technically it was around for about two years, but it was an unusually deadly strain of influenza. The flu is influenza. Did you guys realize that? Uh huh. Yeah. I, no, I, I didn't, didn't get that? that flu was influenza yeah. uh, until I started doing the research and then I felt kind of uh-huh. super intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> well, As you should, yes. Yeah. It's a good thing you stumbled upon this topic then. We could have gone all the way through life and not known about it. Never that. known yeah. that the flu and influenza were the same thing. Uh-huh. So it was oh, an yeah. unusually deadly strain of influenza and it hit the world in. Basically, two major events, one around April, May of 1918, and then again, it popped up, I believe it was around September of 1918. Does that, does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
which is unusual because a flu would normally when does the flu normally arrive it's it's early winter yeah, yeah. usually yeah. people get the flu like late fall and then it hangs around for winter and almost i mean and i you know i'm not a doctor but it's my understanding that almost every year it's a basically a different strand that people get, you know, people develop an immunity very often, you know, you have to get vaccinated every year because it's like a slightly different strand because it's always mutating, which, you know, it's, that's what a virus does. Right. Continues to do that. Well, and this one was weird because it showed up in the spring and then it showed up before the fall would normally have had its normal strains coming through. What was really, really bad about this, why it's considered a pandemic is that it in Infected worldwide, 500 million people. That's so many people. It is. Well, especially in those days, because yeah. there weren't nearly as many people in those no, days. No. It, it, well, and it, it killed 3 to 5% of the world's population. It mm-hmm. was killing up to, at its height, 50% of the people who were infected with it. It killed 200. And then, okay, the numbers are a little hard to get for the exact number of people it that died. It was 1918. It was 1918. Right? You know. Record keeping was not at its height as it is today. The numbers that I found range from 20 to 100 million people Jesus. died mm-hmm. in that year. Plus time frame from yeah, they, they, this influenza. Then you uh, you tack on all the millions who were slaughtered in the trenches of World War Two or World War One. World War One, which yeah. was happening, you know, like, was happening at the exact same time. Yeah, yeah. The, the human be- the human race took a, a, a big setback. Yeah, in those couple we really of years. Did. Yeah, we really seriously. I mean, the world might be a much different place today. Yeah, it, I mean, it, I mean, that's that's a huge chunk of a generation. Yeah, oh, yeah. of several generations oh, yeah. actually. Yeah, the economic loss and also a certain number of geniuses probably died. People. Who would have invented like the anti gravity beam or something like something that? Like you know? that. I mean, yeah, yeah. And we don't yeah. have the anti gravity beam today because of this. Because yeah, of that you're right. Freaking flu. You know? It's considered one of the deadliest natural disasters of human history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just because of that sheer volume of people who died. Yeah. Uh, now, we, I, at least I, will continually refer to this as the Spanish flu because that's the name that it was dubbed. You said, Joe, well, that we were in World War I. Mm-hmm. Okay, what happens during a military conflict? Well, most governments censor, at least at that time, they really censored what news could and couldn't be put out. Yeah, yeah. Well, in Spain, because I don't believe they were as involved or involved in the war at that time, they weren't censoring the news. So they were the first ones to report it. Mm-hmm. So they say, well, we've got this new strain. It's, it's People are really sick. People are dying. So globally, everybody just started referring to it as the Spanish flu because that must be where it came from. It's good for them, really. What? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's great because now for Spain, forevermore is remembered as the place of origin of this horrible flu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, you Which know, makes me want to go to Spain. Oh, yeah. 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 Me too. Yeah. But yeah, and, and, and Spain will actually be known for something. It's like, you know, because they're not really known for anything. That's know, true. Like, you know, flamenco and Conquering a big chunk of the world in the 16 and 1700s. You're right. Oh, there was that. You know, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, here's the other thing that made this such a deadly, deadly outbreak is if you've ever seen when we get to that time of year when the flu is coming out and we get the vaccinations, you know, they, they start saying everybody needs a vaccination. Who are the first people that they say should be vaccinated? Old people and babies. 
and children, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Because they are the ones that are most likely to be affected because theoretically their immune systems aren't developed enough to fight off the infection. Yeah. What's unusual about the Spanish flu is that its primary target range was people between the ages of 20 and 40. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So those were the people who were primarily dying and the young and the elderly were basically spared for a, a large part. They they didn't they didn't kill them. They get sick, not necessarily, you know, spared, but they get sick, but they wouldn't die from it. Yeah. Which imagine, is unusual. Imagine yeah. the ramifications if something like that hit us again today with our demographics today. We have so many more old people on social security. And if, <laughs> in if this like, country, if a huge yeah. chunk of young working age people just died off, well, Social Security is going to collapse. That, yeah, that it, would know? be a, yet another social issue. Yeah, that would come apart from this. Uh, so that is kind of the general summation of what the Spanish flu was. Right. Okay, we know it's influenza, but we don't know what caused it, and why it was so bad. Right. Uh, It's referred to as H1N1, which, again, if you've ever listened to the news, when there's outbreaks of swine flu or bird flu, it's it's H1N1 or H2N1 or H5. There's always those, those that term is always used, though the numbers change. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I don't think any of us know particularly what that pertains to. I mean, I, I some complex chemistry, something. But wasn't uh, swine flu N1H1, not H1N1? I can't remember. I don't I, remember which way it goes. It, it's, it, it's, ladies and gentlemen, if you understand this, please help us. But it is a very complex subject, and I had a very difficult time getting to the to getting it straight in my head. Did but you, did no, you try it doing is H1N1. Did you try doing you try doing a Google and you know, like, like what does H1N1 mean? I, I did, <laughs> and it like all that? broke down into very, very scientific information mm. and words that were so long I couldn't pronounce them and so where's like where's like remember. and and or but like yeah. <laughs> yeah. if it's got more than four letters in it i'm, I'm yeah gone. they're tough <laughs> again we don't know what caused it and what or what caused it and or what made it so deadly so that is today's show we're going to talk about the spanish flu and theories about what made it so bad and we've got some good ones yeah. we we Not did. just what made it so bad, but where it came from. Well, where it came from potentially. The and, Spanish. And what's that? The Spanish. The Spanish. It came from the Spanish. The Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> they invented it. Yeah. yeah. So let's, uh, let's go ahead, and now that you know what's happening, let's jump right in into some theories. So the first theory that we've got isn't the nicest theory in the world, and I'll be honest with you that in terms of... It's from a different era, ladies and gentlemen, so the terminology isn't always the most PC. Mm -hmm. But the first theory that we've got here is that it was caused by migrant workers in Portugal and Spain. Remember that we're in 1918 and we have tons and tons of people fighting the war. Well, farming still needs to happen. So what happens? You go out, you find people who can do the work, and you put them on a train, and you bring them to your country, and you have them do the work, and then you put them on a train, and you send them home. Mm-hmm. This first theory is that it, it didn't necessarily originate because of migrant workers. It may have just been a flu. Mm-hmm. 
But because of the fact that the railroad systems were being used to transport so many people back and forth, not just the migrant workers, but also soldiers from every country to fight the war, that it spread faster than anything that we had ever seen Mm -hmm. because of that. And because it spread so fast, nobody ever had a chance to catch up and figure out what was going on before it was too late. Plus... Normally, if something breaks out, let's say in the United States, mm-hmm. and it's a it's decimating people, well, it's not likely at that time it didn't as easily go from one area to the next because there's not as many people going back and forth. But now it is. Okay, so the my only problem with that theory, I think it's a pretty good theory, right? You know, well, in terms how it's spread, I, I agree. Modern yes. science, I think that my biggest problem with that, in terms of how it spread, is that wasn't it discovered in multiple different countries at basically the exact same time? I do, yes, I, I've seen although, that in, in a lot of papers. Although you know, you know, again, that's questionable too, because I mean, it's. It could have been around in like one place longer than another place, but the local doctors and everybody else just thought, well, it's just people dying, you know, people getting sick and dying. Right. Medical science was not as exact as it is today. Not that it's all that great today either, but, uh, or, um, you know, and so it might have been. And so finally, when people started hearing about this global pandemic, then, then they suddenly realized, oh, you know, there's, there's, here's a guy with flu, whereas, like, last year there was there was people keeling over from the flu, and they just didn't realize what it was. Right. And so that's a possibility. Well, it's also, remember, we, uh, that's one of the things I was talking about, uh, why it got dubbed the Spanish flu is because of the fact that... Spoke with a Spanish accent. Oh, uh, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> No, one of the reasons that it got dubbed the Spanish flu is because of the fact that everybody else was censoring the information. So it may have been that it was building in all of the same areas at the same time or different times, but reports of it were being suppressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's that option, too. Yeah, there's always there's always bad information, so it didn't necessarily appear everywhere at once. I mean, as it, far as we know, as it did. We know but, that it essentially did, but we can't say that it hit 18 places in the same day. Yeah, it did. We can't yeah, distinctly say that. It, yeah, we noticed it all over the place at the same time. <laughs> it doesn't mean it started but, all over the place. But the globally, time, noticing but yeah. something is tends to be a slow process. Mm-hmm, yeah. One of the things they talk about with the 1918 flu is that it took us a startlingly long time to make it to Australia. Uh Uh-huh. I do. I saw that. Which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, it didn't make it there until 1919 and like February of 1919. A year later. A year, a whole year later. And if you are thinking, you know, well, it's just spreading through troops, you know, it's spreading like a normal virus, you know, that's kind of where that comes into play because... You know, I think that there was definitely there was a lot of transference between people, you know, going back and forth between Australia. Certainly not a year. I, I think a year warranted between those two is there's some kind of disconnect for me, at least there, that it would take a whole year for a worldwide pandemic like that to reach someplace. To reach another continent. To reach another <laughs> continent, especially a continent that it seems like there was a lot of travel happening because they were very involved with the war. They were. So, you know, there were a lot of soldiers coming and going. 
So if it was just the human to human, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's just my only big question mark over this whole thing. I And I agree with that because I, I've read reports where they were quarantining ships. If there mm-hmm. was any sign of it, the ship was quarantined. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't necessarily Australia, but all kinds of ports were doing it. And I've also read reports that a ship would leave port and it would break out. And the entire crew was essentially, you know, knocked down with it at one time. Time, which would make yeah. it really hard to go from kind of hard to, like, to from one continent to the next. Yeah, if your entire crew is sick. Yeah, so yeah, that, was, just that was that was the hell of in Sorry. World War Two. Is like you know when you send troops over to Europe, you know you realize that half of them are going to die before they even get there. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, that was really a hard thing. So this is, and this is the other thing, right? I'm just going to read this little quote that I've got here about this flu. It says it was detected in Boston and Bombay on the same day, but took three weeks before it reached New York city. Despite the fact that there was considerable travel between two cities, it was present for the first time in Joliet in the, in the state of Illinois, four weeks after it was detected in Chicago. And it's like 38 miles between the two. Yeah. You know, so I think, there are definitely some questions in terms of it just being like a normal thing that people didn't have a resistance to, that it spread so quickly. And you have certainly, you know, it could have mutated and just, you know, affected everybody a little differently. But the fact that places that are geographically so close, yeah, that people are definitely moving in between consistently, it takes weeks or months for that to, you know, for it to really spread that way. That's my big question mark with it just being this like fairly mundane, you know, granted it was a hardcore strain of influenza, but for it to just be like a, uh, everybody had it, you know, you just caught it from someone type of virus. Well, it might have been that the people of New York scared it away for a while until it grew <laughs> up. Sure. And then it got strong enough. Yeah. Like, I'm taking on New York. The good news is Joliet is not a scary place. <laughs> <laughs> Having been there multiple times, they did not scare it away. No. So, you know, and the fact that it took three weeks to travel those 40 miles, but, you know, just days to travel internationally, that's my big question mark as, a, yeah. as far as it's, that. It's awesome. It doesn't, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't add up. Did, right. uh, does, uh, I don't want to you know what the incubation period of it was? I don't. I I believe that it's it's like it, it was really quick. Hmm. It was a very rapid, I think, a very rapid uh, incubation period. So you got exposed, and then within a couple of days, you were in full blown symptoms. Hmm. And then and then okay, so that that quickly, and, and but then. But of course, but these are reports know. that we get that, yeah. again, these are from 1918, so it could be the guy said, well, I, I haven't seen anybody, and I, I felt fine until yesterday, and then suddenly I was sick, and when he may have been walking up and down the streets for weeks feeling like crud, it yeah. just never reported it. Yeah, so, I mean, we don't know how yeah. long they were infected. No, there's no, anything. yeah, there's no good number. You know, it says it's short, a short incubation period, which, to be fair, in the flu, you know, your incubation period in a typical flu is maybe a week, I think. So, you know, a short incubation period is likely a couple days, but... Who knows? Yeah, so I don't know. Mm. All right, know. what's uh, what's the next one up on the docket? Uh, let's see, what other things that we got here? There's all kinds of stuff here. There, um, There is a theory, and I, I, don't, I wouldn't place much credence on it, that it was man-made as a weapon. So, U.S. Army bacteriological warfare weapon somehow infected U.S. Army ranks at Camp Riley, Kansas. There was a major breakout there in March 1918 and spread around the world. 
Um, so it was like an accident of biological warfare, early exp- exp- experimentation. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so they were they were they were working on biological warfare, and uh, which you know I don't know that that makes a lot of sense because uh, I mean the, really the end thing in World War One was chemical warfare. Right. That was what everybody was into. I mean, I, I, this is kind of like you know that was that was what everybody thought was just the shiz. You know. Well, that, but think and, about it. If if everybody else is doing chemical warfare and you want to get the upper hand. And you might set off a sect of scientists and say, make me the super, make me something that will kill this, these people. And to be fair. Not knowing it's going to blow up in your own face. Sure. And to be fair, you know, the United States military is known for nothing if not saying, hey, scientists, here's a couple million dollars. Do whatever you think will kill the most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. we're pretty good at doing that in America, right? We oh, yeah. say, this is true. Hey, think of something that you think will kill a lot of people in a really short amount of time uh, here's a couple million dollars do some research but the problem is is like uh you know i don't know that uh, our our biological science was was advanced enough in those days so we could actually like these days we can do gene splicing and all kinds sure. of stuff we can create killer bugs just really easily in the lab mm-hmm. i don't know exactly how if we had the sophistication to actually create, I mean, we could come up with something like anthrax. I mean, anthrax was around. Sure. And you can bottle up anthrax and dump that on the enemy. But as far as inventing a new disease and two de- designing a disease. I have a two-word answer for that. Yeah, what's that? Happy accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. You, you got, they got lucky in the uh-huh. worst sort of way, got lucky. I well, was going to say, um vaccines and that yeah. is another one that because basically what a vaccine is is mutate you know it's i mean it's mutating a virus to the point where it's effective enough that your body attacks at thinking mm-hmm. it's a virus but not effective enough to actually give you the disease right mm-hmm. that's my understanding of it again mm-hmm. you know i'm not actually a scientist or anything no that's my understanding of what a vaccine is so if you can create that which you certainly could in you know 1918 mm-hmm. there's the potential to and you know all it was was just a super flu right i mean it's not like it was some brand new state-of-the-art crazy thing you know it had a short incubation period it spread really quickly Mm -hmm. but when it came down to it it was just h1n1 which is just influenza yeah let me uh, but again the the, the problem i have with that is mm -hmm. that and i'm not saying it's impossible but what you would have to do is isolate some strains of flu and then and then try to in your own crude 1918 way tweak those things to to make them a little different and then you would have to find people to infect with it. Well, I think, I think you're reading into that too much. I, I Again, I think that you're expecting them to have intents to go farther than they know how to go. Mm-hmm. Again, I think that somebody might have stumbled upon something. Let me let me read you this thing that I've, I've got here because uh, Devin brought up. Uh, I really, this one about vaccines, I really find interesting. Yeah. And this is an account from, or this is a, a excerpt from a book. It's Eleonora McBean. She's got a PhD and she wrote a book, Swine Flu Exposed. So here's what she says. I'd heard seven men drop dead in a doctor's office after being vaccinated. This was in an army camp, so I wrote to the government for verification. They sent me the report 
of U.S. Secretary of War Henry Stimson. The report not only verified the report of the seven men who dropped dead from the vaccines, but it stated that there had been 63 deaths and 28,585 cases of hepatitis as a direct result of the yellow fever vaccine during only six months of war. Uh, That was only one of the 14 to 25 shots given to the soldiers. So she goes on to talk about that, you know, it may have been that they, they vaccinated for something, mm-hmm. accidentally caused something else, created a new vaccine rapidly for that. It turns around and makes something even worse. And then we end up with the Spanish flu out of that. So, okay, wait, the one in four got what? Hepatitis was one of the things that came out right away with all these soldiers. Okay, well, I, okay, to be fair, it was 1918. Yeah. They, I don't feel like they sterilized real well. No, so. I was just, no you're, you're absolutely right. And the needles were probably in short supply. So, that, But that's very interesting that, so the vaccines in those days, you don't hear about that really, right? You don't hear that vaccines were causing all of these horrible things. But I guess it makes sense, you know, as Joe was saying earlier... They, the, you know, biology back then, people didn't totally understand how to make things. And, you know, you say, okay, well, we we can vaccinate against this one thing, but maybe you can't actually, you know, your vaccination causes a bunch of different stuff. I don't know. I I don't totally understand entirely how vaccines are created, but my understanding is that Generally, the standard vaccination is you you get some of whatever it is. You get the flu strain, mm-hmm. and then you kill it, inject the dead cells in somebody's body, and then and then your your immune system still reacts to those dead cells. Mm. Right? They do. They and I've heard of such things as live vaccines, and I don't know exactly how those, how those work. If they keep the uh, the numbers of actual live cells down to such a low count mm-hmm. that they can't really your your immune system is so. going to be able to counteract them before they take off. I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. So. But it, huh. I mean, well, think about it though. If they make a, they think they've made a vaccine, and they've accidentally combined some things, or if it's dirty needles, and so one guy's got something and it's not accounted for, it could make some rapid change or mutation, bringing on multiple things at once that creates. Mm. I mean, it, it it does sound like it could possibly be a cascade event. Sure. Although, where where's this fort? That this uh, Fort Riley, Kansas. So those, that was definitely not one of the first outbreaks reported, was it? No, you're right. I mean, but the problem is, is that he's at a fort where there are thousands upon thousands of troops, sure. all housed together. Mm-hmm. So if they all get exposed inadvertently and then shipped off, sure. Well, now we've just got the perfect, you know, mechanism to spread it to everybody. Sure, sure. It yeah. could be. I don't know. Yeah. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. 
That's 25% off at lifelock.com slash iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey guys, LeVar Arrington here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck. Like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design. The Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before or check out the fully redesigned tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a toyota truck you buy toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com toyota let's go places so our, our next theory um i you know we've kind of been talking it, i think it segues really well we've been talking about you know human error of the 1918 time mm-hmm. that you know we knew you know and i think you you look at this you look at history this way all the time right we knew enough to like do most most damage with it mm-hmm. right so one of the theories is that it was actually um that it helped to raise the numbers of people who were attributed to having a Spanish flu, but that it was aspirin poisoning. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the war is going on, so most of the, like, really great doctors have at this point been enlisted and are overseas. So most of the people who are treating things are low-level nurses, interns, you know, medical students, things like that. Pharmaceutical reps. Pharmaceutical reps, if you will. Uh, pharmacists, surely, you know, in, in that day and age, you kind of went age. to your pharmacist. Yeah. You didn't necessarily have to go to your doctor to get a prescription. You just went to your pharmacist. That was an actual thing. Those, yeah. Those were the days. In 1918, right before the spike in October, the death spike that happened in October. Okay. Um, the U.S. Surgeon General, along with the U.S. Navy and the Journal of American Medical Association, recommended the use of aspirin. Their recommendation was because of a pulmonary edema. It would. Uh, it was occurring in three percent of the population, which is a significant portion of the population. So they were suggesting the use of aspirin to counteract this. So in 1917, the thing that happened right before this is that Bayer lost its patent on aspirin. Okay, so because of that, a lot of aspirin was being made and distributed without the proper warning labels on it. Oh. So there weren't doses or anything like that on there. So people don't know what they're doing. So people don't know what they're doing. The Surgeon General says, take aspirin, and they're like, okay, I'll just swallow a whole bottle because the bottle doesn't say, (laughs) I don't do that, right? It's better than dying of a pulmonary embolism or whatever, you know, they say we're going to die of. Uh So... There's a quoted a lot of chaos happening. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, I've seen photographs from that time of um, like Main Street America. You know, I see, uh-huh. I see I, speaking of chaos, I, I, you know, like like funeral parlors got just dozens of coffins stacked on the sidewalk outside because they were out of room. So yeah. they had to stash the corpses on the sidewalk. So yeah. it must have seemed like the end of the world. Yeah, so, I think, you know, people were and, really scared of everything. Oh, yeah. And so I would, I would definitely take, you know, a, a 
you know, a lot of aspirin if I thought that that would work. Sure. But there is a way to figure out if that's true or not, and that is to dig up some corpses of people who died from the flu uh-huh. and just see if, if a representative, if, like, if they all had, like, high levels of aspirin in their system. Well, but most of them are embalmed, right? Well, the other oh, thing is yeah. that there are, there are accounts of doctors giving patients basically handfuls of aspirin at a time mm-hmm. drop you know pouring as many uh, you know three four five six seven eight nine ten into their hand and just d- giving it to say take this mm-hmm. and doing that on rounds yeah so i'm taking knew. six seven eight aspirins at a time every couple of hours so yeah. are you guys ready for this yeah let's hear it here are the symptoms of aspirin overdose okay death People with mild intoxication, just a mild intoxication of aspirin poisoning, uh, would frequently have nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, lethargy, tinnitus, and dizziness. What does that sound like to you? The flu. The flu. So more severe poisoning includes hypothermia, respiratory problems, metabolic problems, uh, hypoglycemia, hallucinations, confusion, seizures, um, and coma. What does that sound like? That sounds like the, the end of the flu. the flu influenza. Yeah, and then it just kills you. Missing everything except the uh, fever. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're taking aspirin, you don't have fever. Well, fever. it could be that, you know, like if you're, you got the flu, so you got flu symptoms, mm-hmm. but the flu wouldn't, yeah, the flu doesn't kill you, but the aspirin does. Oops. Well, sure. Yeah. yeah. So there are a lot of theories surrounding that, right? You know, that it was just people just saying, I'm going to take 20 aspirin. Or it was people saying, I don't feel great. I'm going to take some aspirin, taking too many aspirin, mm. killing themselves that way, even though they did have the flu. So, you know, there are a lot of really interesting theories in terms of that. Yeah, accidental treatments. Accidental. Again, it's, accident, it's, it's accidental yeah. cures and accidental treatments. Yeah, and, work. you know, the the thing that's really interesting, I think, about this is that it was it was mass hysteria. It really you know, was. Because mm-hmm. everybody was yeah. dying. And so when everybody's dying and the Surgeon General says, oh, I'll just take some aspirin. Yeah. Yeah. You think the end is nigh. You'll, You're going to You'll take whatever it. you have to. And so. you don't know. So, uh, but, um, so he made his announcement when? In 1918. In 1918. What, when in 1918? It's, uh, it was just before the October spike, so you can kind of assume that it was in probably November. Okay, but wasn't there a previous spike before the aspirin announcement? No, no. There, was the initial, there was the initial impact in about May of that year. Yeah. And there was, there was a death toll, but it wasn't nearly as severe as the secondary event, which happened uh, in the fall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And see. that's just before so, that event started really picking off. Now, again, as Devin said, it, it can't account for all of it. No. But it does help mm-hmm. when, oh, got to do this, then no wonder your numbers start climbing. Even upwards. if it was just a yeah. fourth, right? Even if it's just a quarter of the people overdosing on aspirin, yeah. that adds so many more. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, it's, uh, but yeah. did, did, but the, did the October spike, was that replicated around the world or was that just yeah. in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was All around the world. It was globally. Mm-hmm. Because remember, world. that was when it's it, – the first one was a very mild impact. It, it didn't hit a lot of people. The second event is when it's it was suddenly – 
people who hadn't been sick before were getting sick, and that's when it, it was reaching, you know, up to 50% infectivity rates mm. and or uh, death rates from infection mm. and just running rampant so through everyone. I've just found this. This is very fascinating to me. The Journal of the American Medical Association, right? That was one of the, the groups that was recommending aspirin. Yeah. They... Recom- the dose they were recommending was 1,000 milligrams every three hours, which is equivalent to 25 standard pills every hour today. Wow. Oh. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that, 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 that's a problem. So it's a, a pretty problem. solid theory I gotta that that you. would have helped to add to the numbers. Uh, yeah, probably. Because that's a lot. 20, 25 pills mm-hmm. in 24 hours. It's twice the daily dosage, which is considered to be like the higher edge of safety. Yeah. yeah. But it seems like even leaving the aspirin out, it seems like this was still an exceptionally deadly flu virus. Oh, yeah. No, it was still know, before, the flu virus. I mean, yeah. it, it, it was before, just the aspirin was a, was something that was going ar- along with it. was none of the wheel on the bus. It, but it sounds like, yeah. yeah, it sounds like it wasn't really the cause of the, the deadliness no, of this no. particular virus. Uh, so let's talk <laughs> a little bit about this actual virus. Okay. Because, you know, the, we've we've touched on this a little bit, right? That it, when it boils down to it, the Spanish flu was just influenza. But right. it was clearly the most deadly version of influenza that we've ever that had. we've ever encountered. You know, even, you know, recently everybody I'm sure will remember Span- or the um, swine flu recently, which, you know, of course ended up being way scarier than it actually was. True. But, or how about deadly SARS? Remember SARS? Yeah, you know, these are all strains of the same thing. Mm-hmm. But we should talk a little bit about what makes the Spanish flu specifically so interesting. Or what potentially could have made it so deadly. I yeah. think it's, 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 it's biology yeah. that made it so deadly. You're yeah. absolutely right. And and I found some in, some research that I think is really interesting. And bear with me because this is very scientific in, in the meat of it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of hard to get through. So we're, we'll, we'll do our best with this. And if I mispronounce something, uh, I apologize. This is why we're letting Steve do it because my brain shuts off. <laughs> so I apologize if I snore. Right. As we've talked about before, the span the flu itself typically will focus on people who have a compromised immune system. Therefore, yeah. the younger, the old. Yeah. Well, it's been theorized and they've actually dug up some people who had the Spanish flu to try to figure this out. And that's where a number of these theories are coming from. Okay. And I don't know if you guys saw this, but they dug up people who had died of the Spanish flu in Alaska and had been buried in the permafrost. Yeah. And so they pulled them out and they started autopsying them. And, mm-hmm. and of course, some of the bodies were in poor condition and they didn't find anything and some of them were better than others. So there's all this research on, well, let's see what the virus actually did on these preserved corpses. And that's where this first theory that I've got t- comes in is that it says that the Spanish flu featured what's referred to as a cytokine burst. 
Uh, and it, it happens at the site of infection. Uh, cytokines are a special cellular signaling molecule in your body. Cytokines happen at the site of an infection, and that draws your white blood cells to come in and attack whatever the infection is. Okay. What this says is that there was literally an explosion of cytokines at the sites in the lungs where the splu the the influenza was happening so therefore your body says whoa there is something seriously bad going on here and i am going to go in and i am going to destroy that and it would actually destroy the tissue of the lung because it was fighting this area so bad. Mm. Well, it's an airborne infection, which means that a lot of your lung is full of this infection. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it's full, you know, you've got these little explosions of cytokines going all over. So, of course, your body goes in and just tears it up destroys your lungs and when you get the flu what happens you get phlegm mm -hmm. and in pneumonia you get fluid in the lungs mm -hmm. well your your lungs are stopped up and therefore they just start filling with fluid and that's what would help kill you from this particular one your own body actually did so much damage to itself because of this weird feature of this strain of influenza. Mm. So that's why you die. So this was basically a virus that gave you an auto autoimmune disease. Yeah. Essentially, yes. So that's what, what I'm curious about is like, um, is, is it possible that the people who died from this already had autoimmune disorders. I, I don't know. I can't yeah, say that. All I can say is that this research, if, if you look at it, because we talked about it before, again, 20 to 40-year-olds were the hardest hit oh. by the Spanish flu. Yeah. Who has the strongest immune system? 20 to 40-year-olds. 20 yeah. to 40. So they have a really robust immune system. So this happens and their body just goes into massive overdrive to attack the infection mm. and inadvertently destroys its own lungs. Wow. I I I I found this today and it's really it's really interesting because that would explain why the symptoms came on so fast and people died within a matter of hours to days of coming down with it because their body just literally went in and destroyed itself and you couldn't breathe and you shut down because of it. Wow. I That's I don't a know how That's a solid theory. Well yeah, it's really solid. It's it's hard to say because I've never we've never heard of something having a component like that in it before mm -hmm. that caused such a severe reaction other than you know, as you said, Devin, autoimmune issues, but mm -hmm. those tend to not be as severe. Well, okay, bee stings and things like sure, that. They are, sure. You're right. Actually, they are really severe, but mm. it's just amazing that a flu could cause that massive and across yeah. a huge number of people because that's the problem, Joe. Okay, well, if they had an mm. autoimmune disease before, the millions and millions and millions of people that died couldn't have all had the same autoimmune deficiency. Well, there's a lot of different autoimmune deficiencies, but I, now that I think about it, I think that uh, the, 
autoimmune deficiencies would be represented in all age groups. Yeah. And not mm-hmm. just, not just, you know, people 20 to 40. So that's also a really does. high note. I mean, you know, and I don't know how much of that is because it was a long time ago and couldn't diagnose it, you know, but I think autoimmune diseases affect like less than 5% of the population these days. Mm, yeah. And maybe it is because the Spanish flu called all of these people, but I think that it's <laughs> it probably be, yeah. more realistic mm. to say that, you know, they, I, um, it's oh. healthier. I mean, your body would know. If your body attacks itself, it doesn't attack those viruses generally. Mm-hmm. Well, so I have to do a little research into this and find yeah, out why. Well, uh, you know, I mean, because let's face it, that's that's not not a good immune system. What it tears up your own tissue. You well, know? But it, I mean, it, it's reacting. I mean, the, the immune system is a very single-minded machine, mm-hmm. and it does what it has to do. But this would also explain why the young and the old didn't die as mm-hmm. easily because they didn't have a strong immune system. Yeah. Yeah. So their yeah. immune system couldn't go as ballistic mm-hmm. on the infection. So therefore, they only suffered mild consequences and they healed but and didn't die. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, that's that's just one theory about why this bug was so deadly. I mean, what's We've got a number of... of we have a couple. Yeah, we have a nub, um, another one uh, that says that it... It was a double team of viruses, okay. which is pretty interesting. Um, so there was an autopsy of a, a group of people. You know, I think it was like about 70 people or something like that. Um, so the autopsy showed that the virus uh, replicated not only in the upper respiratory tract, but also the lower respiratory tract, um, which was really similar to the way that the swine flu was behaving. Okay. That's one of the things that made it so deadly as opposed to a regular flu. The regular flu will usually just incubate either in the upper or the lower or it'll move between the two, but it won't attack both at the same time. Ah, I see. So, you know, know like when you get a cold, the flu, right? Mm -hmm. You, it's in your head for a while and then it moves down, but it's never in the same place really at once. You know, it's kind of in the middle sometimes, but you know, the typical flu that you get, you get your head cold and then you get your chest cold and then that's it. So they found that um, there were two virus variants circulating in 1918. Um, in one, there was a viral protein that was a uh, hemoglobin bound to the res- human receptor cells, which is kind of what you were talking about just a few minutes ago. And the other one didn't bind to the hemoglobins. So, your body was trying to attack two different viruses that affected your body in two different ways at the same time. It would attack one. It can't attack both, essentially. Mm-hmm. So you were really sick in two different ways. So so essentially it's possible that people who caught the flu and didn't die just caught one of those variants, mm-hmm. and the people who died caught both of them? Yes. It's like, yeah. Have, yeah. They, have they done any, like, serious digging up of corpses trying to figure that out? Well, again, that's the hard part. You keep yeah. asking the same thing, Joe, which is, well, let's dig some people up. Well, it was almost 100 years ago, Yeah. Mm-hmm. and the only ones that we found were these ones that were buried in the permafrost. There have been some discoveries of lung tissue that was in some military base in the mm-hmm. back of a freezer that you know they meant to look at and they never got to and they found it recently but for the most part there's nothing left yeah Yeah. so i mean you know they they preserve bodies or in pandemics like this 
they burn bodies, mm-hmm. right? They destroy bodies because they're scared that the dead bodies will continue well, they to feed propagate the, pigs. the disease. I mean, sure. They still need to feed the pigs. Yeah, of but, course. Yeah. Um, but, but so the theory is, is that there were two different variants of this virus and that mm-hmm. one bound to your hemoglobin, like we were talking about earlier, it bound to your white blood cells, mm-hmm. which just like made your body attack itself. And the other had the exact same symptoms, except for that it didn't actually bind to your blood. Mm-hmm. So there was one variant that was highly deadly and another that wasn't. Or, I mean, or maybe was, two variants that were not in and of themselves deadly, but, but together. together well, no, it was, it was, yeah. it's, it's one is very deadly. Devin's right. It's one's very, one's very deadly, deadly and, and one is yeah. mildly deadly. Mm-hmm. But if you get them both in conjunction, then you're, you're done. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. You're done for. Yeah. Although again, that doesn't really, that's, that still doesn't explain why people in the 20 to 40 age group, because you would think that, you know, you would think that. You were just as statistically likely to catch both strains if you were, say, 10 years old or 80 years old. That's true. Although, I guess the thing that is a factor that we haven't really taken into consideration yet is who gets deployed. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? That's true. Who's traveling the world. This is true. And also... in constant contact with people from everywhere. Yeah. But actually, you know, um, I don't know if you know this about kids, but they're kind of little disease vectors. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. I happen to know that. Yeah, you know that. And I can tell you from my own recent personal experiences, having dealt with kids a lot recently, I had lots of, like, little sicknesses, right? Like, (laughs) I would have, like, a sniffle a week, and they'd Mm. be different sniffles, but I never got, like really sick mm-hmm. whereas like five years ago i would get like really sick maybe twice a year, like maybe twice a year but when i got sick it was like knocked on your butt like in bed for a couple of days just miserable sick so i th- and you know you kind of notice that's with kids and i think older people as well they're fairly constantly sick but it's kind of just this like I have a post nasal drip thing going on as opposed to uh I also I also think that with the, with healthy adults what do we do when we're ill and we got to go to work we go to work. Yeah. No. A lot of people still just go to work even though they're sick. Mm-hmm. Okay, so kids stay home. Yeah. And old people just say, I'm not going out today. I'm having chicken soup. Yeah. And I'm just staying in and I'm going to stay in a blanket and read a book. Mm-hmm. Whereas the healthy people, oh, God, I feel terrible, but I got to go to work. I go to work and I'm sick mm-hmm. and I work with Joe and Joe's sick and he's got to go to work and we both got separate strands and we shake hands. Hands each, you know, that mm-hmm. morning we both just got done wiping our nose with our hand, and we shake hands. Now we've given each other the the other strain. Yeah, actually, we've done each other in. Actually, yeah. I, I usually blow my nose in your coffee, dude. Just so <laughs> <laughs> That's why whenever I get the flu, you always get it. But anyway, um, yeah. you're terrible. Yeah, yeah. Although you know, again, that doesn't quite explain it because, say, the ten year old who stayed home from school. He's got a, a dad who's probably age 20 to 40 who goes to the office, gets a disease from, you know. No, no, I'm, well, okay, I'm not saying it's a perfect the theory. Yeah. Well, I mean, none of these are perfect. But that's why I say it may have been a product of the war that was happening because, yes, in normal circumstances, the 20 to 40-year-old who is the father of the 10-year-old mm-hmm. goes to work, gets In this sick, case, he's off in a trench in World War, War He's War gone one. off yeah. to the yeah. war yeah. and that's gotten sick point. and hasn't seen his 10-year-old that's another, forever. That's another interesting uh, factoid I'd like to find out about, and I should have found out about this mm. before we did the show, but what were the, the mortality rates between, say, 
our troops mm-hmm. and civilians back home. Sure. It's about the same, actually. Yeah. It it yeah. really dis- didn't differentiate mm-hmm. where you were. The, the death tolls in the country, regardless of your country of origin, where you were, your death toll from the Spanish flu was about the same all across the board. Well, there you go, debunking our theories. Uh, yeah. Well, no, here's the crazy thing. Uh, this is just a, a random factoid about it. There was only one place in the entire world mm-hmm. that reported no deaths. Okay, where was it? American Samoa. Huh. They shut their borders down as soon as word about the Spanish flu came out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they move. didn't get it. Hmm. Japan basically shut their borders down and had a very small outbreak. And there was one other country that did the same thing. Basically, whoa, there's this really bad flu going on. Nobody's coming in. Hmm. Everybody stay away. And they had very minimal rates of infection. I mean, American Spo had no deaths, but the rest of them had very low numbers of deaths. So it might have been the the weaker of the strains got in, mm-hmm. but it didn't kill anybody because his big brother was wasn't there to support it. Sure. Yeah. Okay, you know, uh, so that's a good one, but there's also yet another one. And this one is actually, I think, kind of um, kind of incredible. And that is uh, uh, the tuberculosis physician, um, Sir John Crofton, actually posited the theory that it was bacteria, not the flu virus itself, though, that was actually at the root of the big pandemic. Oh. So he said, as, yeah, it was We're going it to was bacteria, bacteria. So it's not just, not just virus, but virus and bacteria. So the, the bacteria is, uh, the hemophilus. And I apologize if I murdered the pronunciation, uh, influenza. He claimed it was at the root of the great pandemic. He said it was bacteria that started the epidemic uh, during the pandemic. Uh, apparently one third of patients, who had this particular influenza were also found to have tuberculosis, and there were most likely oh. other cases that went I went undiagnosed. Oh. Uh, Tuber- so, oh, that's right. Tuberculosis was terrible at that time. Yeah, it was a big thing. It was like, yeah, well, that was actually my my grandfather had tuberculosis. Well, this was well, as well after the 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 whole Spanish flu thing. Sure, sure. But he, uh, but yeah, they were I, actually I, they were actually going to lock him up. Tuberculosis. Yeah. He agreed to uh, move out to the desert. He lived in Southern California at the time, so he agreed to move out to the desert and basically place himself, you know, under house self in quarantine. And, mm-hmm. Under quarantine, he basically really? didn't leave the house for a year or something like that. Wow! Whoa. And his alternative was to go into an asylum where they had, which is what they did with people with TB back in those days. Oh, um, I, I know that. I know in my family, there's talk of uh, my grandmother talked about. Her aunt, which would be what my great great aunt is yeah. that how that would that, that your grandmother's, your grandmother's aunt? aunt? It was my grandmother's yeah. aunt. Yeah, yeah, your great great aunt. aunt that yeah. they never could figure out what was wrong with her. And years later, the, the family was just sitting around talking like, "Yeah, we figure." I, I I don't remember what her name was, but aunt whoever probably had TB, and they just never figured it out in time. Because uh-huh. yeah, TB was a terrible. It was it was a it was another uh, essentially pandemic of its own. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. 
yeah. rampant through the, the population. Very serious stuff. And yeah, they, and they, you know, I mean, the civil rights weren't quite what they were in those days as they are today. So mm-hmm. you got that. It was not, it was no problem at all for them to grab you and just stuff you in an asylum or an institution oh, yeah. somewhere. Yeah. So help me, help me out here, Joe, because my memory is failing me at the moment is, do you remember what, what exactly does tuberculosis do to you? Do you remember? Tuberculosis basically attacks your lungs. Um, and it is a very deadly disease. It's actually got among most, in most people, it stays kind of latent, but among people that it severely affects, it kills about half of them. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, let me put that. Uh, yeah, most infections are what they call uh, asymptomatic and latent, but about one in 10 latent infections eventually progresses to an active disease which, if left untreated, kills more than 50% wow. of the infected people. So it's in the lungs. So yeah. it is a lung yeah. disease. Then. Yeah. Interestingly enough, they um, back in the day, they used to use cigarettes, of all things, to, to actually inhibit it. It's kind of like the chemotherapy of its day. What? I saw, I saw an, actual, an, an, old, an old photograph of people that were in some asylum in California that were there and they were all smoking because that was one of the prescribed things they would wow. prescribe people like lucky strikes light up the lucky it's light up time be happy go lucky it's light up time for the taste that you like light up the lucky strike relax it's light up time you're kidding no i'm not oh kidding my God. Yeah, they would actually they would actually make all their patients smoke cigarettes because apparently that inhibited the growth of the bacteria. Oh, wow, jeez. Yeah. Well, hey, the marvel of modern medicine. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a good reason. It's because if if if, if if tobacco is inhibiting the growth of tuberculosis bacteria, it's probably inhibiting other bacterial growth in your lungs too. Sure. So uh, obviously, tobacco is a good thing. Well, the, you know, everybody that got influenza then should have just smoked Lucky Strikes and called it good. The bold, smooth taste. Of <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so anyway. tuberculosis is just an infection of the lungs, right? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a serious, so obviously bad yeah. thing, but right. yeah, so uh, I could see where you know something like this. If you're say infected with a, a virus or two viruses, as in your previous theory. Mm-hmm. And it might, and, and tuberculosis was much more rampant back in 1918 than it is today. True. Uh, it might open the door for uh, some sort of tuberculosis infection, which could be the actual killer. So, but, so this theory is that it's just bad luck? Yeah, well, obviously. Basically. Well, they've got a little bit of tuberculosis in there, but enough that, not enough that their body can't fight it off is what it sounds yeah. like. Well, you know, and then the influenza hits, yeah. and your body's trying to, again, just like you know the double yeah. virus, yeah. you're trying to fight both at once, and then they just hit you all at once. They tag team. Yeah, like, like, like I was just saying, most tuberculosis is what they call latent, asymptomatic, and then, but then say these things come along and boom, you know? It's unleashed. Ugh. The beast is unleashed. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, that's uh, entirely possible if that's what happened. I mean, that, but that's good news for us in our present day because uh, we pretty well, we haven't completely stamped out TB. No, it's, it does but, pop up now and again. We're but, pretty good at it. Yeah, it's a lot less prevalent. I would say that uh, it's entirely possible that there were millions of people, in fact, probable, millions of people were walking around with latent cases of TB back in the, back in 1918. Mm. True. That's probably not happening today. Probably. 
Probably so. not. That's the TV true. police got him. Yeah. This is the TV police. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Poor TV. <laughs> so persecuted. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, so much for that theory. So yeah. I guess the uh, my favorite theory... Yeah, so uh, I was—I know, I know you've been frothing at the book. Because it really is, where did this come from? So, I mean, that is, right, it's the interesting thing is um, a big old mutation of a fairly normal virus. Yeah. Right? And so the big question is, where did this come from? And my favorite theory is space. Woo! The final frontier. The final frontier. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a this really great theory that basically says that uh, every big epidemic that we've ever had as a human race has been follow or has followed very closely a comet. Oh, I saw. So- okay, okay. You got to break this down for me because okay. I, I tried to. I tried to do a little bit on this, but I got lost. Well, I got stuck. <laughs> <laughs> so we got opposites because you got stuck in science or something. I don't know what happened. But so there's a really interesting pattern of human pandemics uh, in the last, you know, like thousands and millions of years. Um, it's a really interesting pattern that we follow. So the first one that I could find record of was the Great Plague of Athens, which was in um, 430 BC. Um, It was localized uh, and it could have had a local source, but that was never discovered. And right before that, uh, we passed through a comet's trail as Earth. Earth passed through a comet's trail. Okay. So like within a year of that pandemic happening. Okay, the next one was in the first century AD. Um, and a Greek physician was referring to an outbreak in Libya, Egypt, and Syria. Um, it was most likely the bubonic plague, let's be fair, which is, you know, spread by fleas and rodents. But right before then, again, we had passed through a comet's trail within the last two years, I think it was. Um, half a millennia later in um, four, 541 A.D., um, uh, they called it a scourge at that point. It was again, the bubonic plague. They kept reoccurring, but it was different strands and more horrible strands every single time, um, in Constantinople. And they're all bacterial diseases that are spread by infected fleas. Okay. So it's not likely that it was just like it went away and then came back and went away and came back. True. Yeah. It wasn't just fleas like dormant don't live in long, fleas. So, yeah. Just, you know, the, suddenly the fleas weren't biting anymore, and then 300 years later, they started biting again. <laughs> you know, I would like it if fleas would stop biting for 300 years. That would be It would make great. my life so much better, because they always go for me. Yeah, yeah. Stop, stop, like, right now and pop up again, like, long after my death. That's cool. Yeah, I don't yeah. care. Yeah, so uh, the bubonic plague is resistant to freezing. Okay. Which is pretty interesting. It's also radiation-resistant. Which is also pretty interesting. So what does that mean for us? It means that the best place for it to incubate is space or the upper atmosphere. So the theory is, is that there, I guess there are two theories. Um, I think we spoke a little bit about this. I know you got to do just a tiny bit of research on it. You know, I understood it that the bacteria and viruses live up in the upper atmosphere and they're constantly bombarded by uh, solar radiation, which would cause all of these viruses and bacterium to mutate Mm -hmm. into weird versions of themselves. 
So the theory that I understood is that they are con- it's just constantly up there. So every once in a while, we pass through the tail of a comet, which causes meteor showers, which is just rocks falling from the sky into our atmosphere all the way to the ground, which brings these bacteria and viruses back down to the ground. Okay. So it would explain why they are the same thing, quote unquote, but they're different strands and more mutated strands of these things. Let me let me just ask, just so I understand sure. point of order here. So you're saying they're air currents are keeping them in the upper atmosphere. Mm-hmm. The winds, they can't drift down because of the winds. Yeah. So they're just constantly swirling up there. Mm-hmm. We've got this little death cloud. Yep. And then a meteor comes swooshing through the atmosphere and creates essentially enough turbulence and causes a tail to suck the that stuff down behind it? That's one of the theories. The okay. other theory is that they become negatively charged. Because so, like the aurora borealis, for instance, uh-huh. is basically negatively charged dust particles from Earth going up into the atmosphere. Uh-huh. So the other theory is that maybe these are becoming the viruses and bacteria are becoming negatively charged. I don't. I'm going to be honest. I don't totally understand that theory. So that that I'm then a scientist lets so them they, attract down. They just or- chill out in the air, and then something coming through there again positively charges them and allows them to come back through. But the it, thing that's really it interesting... It could be that they would eventually just settle out through sheer gravity, too. I mean, sure. They, you know, they do have some mass. So The thing that's really interesting with this, I think, is that um, in a lot of plagues that we've had as a civilization, people talk about them being spread through flying animals of some kind. Yeah. So through birds, yeah, through Mm -hmm. birds or through fleas. Or pigs. Pigs who fly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, that's a really interesting facet to this theory is that things that are closer up in the higher atmosphere get it first and spread it to humans. Okay. Mm -hmm. I can can see see that. that. Yeah. Because I know that, what what was it, the the bird flu of... 2009 or something mm-hmm. and it was it was blamed on waterfowl then spreading the infection to chickens in China mm-hmm. who then you know it then ran rampant through them until they were all destroyed and mm-hmm. only a few people got it but okay yeah okay I, I I can run with that so the way that this kind of ties back into what we're talking about right because we don't want to just talk like amorphously about mm, bacteria and viruses live in the sky uh-huh. <laughs> that's a scary thought right and they could just you know they could just drop down any old time they just drop down whenever so the idea is a combination of one of the theories i was talking about earlier is that it's a combination of two viruses but it's different in that the idea is that it was a new viral strain that transferred its genes to an old viral strain which already existed within the human genome genome or whatever Mm. and created a really deadly hybrid Because the thing that you think about with viruses and bacteria is that its point is to not kill you. The perfect virus, you won't even be affected by it all. So every virus that makes you sick is a mutation of some kind Mm -hmm. because it wants to keep you alive because if you die, it dies, right? Right. So it was this theory that there was a new viral strain that had been horribly mutated up in the atmosphere and came down and basically mixed 
with one that was down here already. Which okay. is a pretty interesting theory. It's a little... I, I'm going to say it seems a little far-fetched, but okay. Sure. A little okay. bit. A little bit. But uh, yeah. anyway... Is, is so, there is there more to to this? This this goes on. I can I, I'm judging by the the tome <laughs> that you're flipping through that this this theory gets deeper and deeper and more and more twisted. So in 1910, do you know what happened in 1910? Yeah, Haley's comet. Haley's comet. Yeah, that's the thing they talk about is that it took seven years for the Spanish flu to come through. Then. So that was the original theory people were talking about. Oh, it was Halley's Comet, blah, blah, blah. So there's no, like, really great cause, causation between that because of the seven years part, right? But oh, there yeah, was this comet be... called Comet Anki uh, that had extremely close approaches to Earth, um, both in 1908 and then again in 1914. Um, and we passed through its tail in 1918. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we we went through its tail three times in ten years. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah. yeah. I didn't I didn't think we hit comets that frequently. Well, so what happens well, with comets, right, is they get stuck in our orbit for a little while. The, what happens is if, if the uh, if the comet if, if the orbit of the comet is in the ecliptic, and you know what the ecliptic is? Mm-mm. Okay, ecliptic. The ecliptic is the plane of uh, when, the, when the sun formed. It basically accreted as a disk. It, compre- it compressed down and it turned into a spinning disk, and then eventually it compressed itself into a sun. And there were byproducts. There was some stuff left behind out there in this disk in the outer fringes, which consolidated itself further into planets. Okay, so, it's, so it's when you see the the map of the planets, it looks like a series of frisbees around the sun. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's a simple exactly. Yeah. And we're more or less the planets are so, more or less in the same plane. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, I got that. So, I got that. And so. So the the actual plane formed by the Earth's orbit is what's called the ecliptic. Okay. And so uh, and so the ecliptic. So if a comet happens to be in more or less in the ecliptic, in other words, if it comes in, crosses orbit, goes around the sun, goes back out, crossing orbit again. If that plane of its orbit is the same as uh, same as the plane of our orbit, then we will cross the we'll cross that path every year. Multiple times. Yeah, okay, times. okay. Yeah, and that's what meteor showers that's why we can predict meteor showers, because we know there's a bunch of cosmic crap out there in our orbital path that we're gonna co- that we're gonna cross through every year. Oh. Because that, those are the remains of a comet. I didn't I, I, I always wondered how that worked. That yeah. okay, that totally makes sense. All right, continue on. Yeah. Joe is the comet expert. Joe is the I comet not expert. The, it's not the our comet powers expert. combined, we will be able to explain this. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things they talked about a lot when I was doing this research was that um, the way that the Spanish flu spread was really weird. So we've spent a lot of time talking this episode about that. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some islands in the mid-Atlantic that definitely escaped, as you were saying. But my research brought up that they didn't close the borders and that there was shipping that happened in between those places. To some of them, yeah. To some of them. You would kind of have to have some of that, huh? There was shipping that happened, but they still remained death and flu-free. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, was very interesting. Well, they might have and just observed good quarantine procedures, too. You never know. They, that's certainly true. And, you know, again, this is all uh, it's conjecture, basically. Yeah, there's been so many rehashes of this, it's yeah. hard to say. Yeah. You know, then there was the, as I said before, the weird delay of it hitting Australia. And one of the things they talked about is that when you analyze the upper atmospheric patterns 
of 1918, the flu very closely followed that pattern. So where the, the places that people were hit really hard were places that the upper atmosphere was more densely happening. Does that make sense? More no. Dense, more, no, not at all. The more densely happening? The more densely happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like weather patterns. You have low, the low atmospheric weather patterns and you have your high atmospheric weather patterns. So there patterns. was uh, they had mm. more high atmosphere weather, weather stuff uh, happening. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's In more these activity. Areas. So it was, it was basically just like falling from the sky along the jet stream. Okay. So that's very interesting as well. All right. So I, I okay. So, so, it, so the that, credence. So the pattern that it followed was not just the way that a a disease goes through the air, an airborne disease goes, which right? is person to person, just person to person. It didn't follow precisely that pattern. It more accurately followed the jet stream and upper atmospheric weather patterns. Okay, which is very interesting as well. I think. Yeah, that's I wouldn't have thought. I, I don't remember seeing that anywhere. So that's okay. So the other thing that was really interesting is that in uh, 2007, this comet. Uh, was struck by a massive material uh, from our sun. It was back in our solar system again. Oh, so this is Anki again? Yes. Was struck by a little bit of our sun. What, like a solar Solar flare? flare. A little solar flare. And it broke off some of the comet's tail, and we went through it again. Hmm. In early June, or early July, late June um, of 2007. And so, do you remember what happened in 2007? Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, I was working at the grocery store. I was drinking. The good news is you're not forgetting anything. But in 2009, what happened? There was another outbreak was, of H1N1? That was avian flu. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Bird flu, yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's really interesting that every time we pass through this thing, you know, there's definitely an incubation period. But... We pass through this tail and we get a new virus. Hmm. We get a new pandemic. It is swine flu. We passed through in 2009 again mm. when right. swine flu happened. Uh, so we're so devil's, screwed. Devil's advocate time. Sure. I, I need to understand. So, okay. This theory is postulating that there is biological material in the tail of a comet. So, my question is how does that live? Because everything I understand is that things don't live in space. Well, they don't mm. have; they are unaffected by freezing. Oh, I thought I said that. I may have not. No, you talked said about that. that the bubonic They're, plague, but I, I, I didn't, I didn't oh, carry that over. So N one H one is also, or H one N one is also resistant yeah. to freezing and resistant to radiation. Oh, yeah, so it's something that's trapped in the ice particles. That make up the comet. Okay. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the theory. So then there, my understanding of it is that these are viruses that just kind of chill in our upper atmosphere. But there also seems to be a theory that they are, in fact, held within these comets. Mm-hmm. Which but- is also really an interesting theory. You know, I got really sucked up into that theory. I've got a lot of information on it. And, you know, just plagues of all of the past. But... Uh, you know, I thought that was kind of an interesting theory that had some good evidence, you know, whether or not I necessarily believe that it's totally accurate. Okay, so this this, this brings up a, a good question. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, you said, I know when we were talking before we started recording, you were talking about having done the research on comets. Um, 
So if there's biological material in the comet, mm-hmm. then it had to come from somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where does the comet come from and where does the biological material come from? That's a, that is the big scary question, isn't it? It's like, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about comets bringing life to the planet and bringing all the water to the planet and everything else. Well, where the hell did the comets come from? You know, and where did that life on the comets come from? There's only one possible explanation, and that is aliens. <laughs> okay, but you're yeah. laughing, but... Yeah. No, actually, that does, that, 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 that... It was the look on his face. That doesn't, sure. that, that doesn't resolve it, obviously, because no. the aliens had to come from somewhere, too. Sure. Because so, the way, And that's something we'll never probably understand, is yeah. where the hell life originated in the universe. Sure. And, you know, the panspermia idea is that it's everywhere. Life yeah. is everywhere. And it's being sort of passed around and distributed all over the place by comets and meteoroids and everything else. Yeah. So the, but my theory about comets yeah, is that my theory about comets is that essentially comets are just kind of like um, kind of like mines that are sent through the planet, that's sent through our solar system by, by some aliens. They've been manufactured. They put them in orbit around the sun. They go around us. There are suspiciously many of them that are in the ecliptic, so that means we cross their paths. Mm-hmm. So when they come in, they rocket around the sun quickly, leave a lot of debris behind, and then they go way, way out there to what's called the Oort's Cloud, way far away, and they mm-hmm. come back like 100 years later. Mm-hmm. So way out there, we can't see what's going on out there, but I'm suspecting that they meet up with an alien starship, which loads them up with all kinds of new deadly bugs, and then they start their journey back in. So there you go. We've solved the mystery. (laughs) (laughs) So you laugh, but he's actually got some good material in there. One of the the interesting things to think about is, as I said... The point of a virus is to keep you alive. I mean, it's not like going to enhance your health, but it's not supposed to hurt it. So, you know, it's this big question of where did these viruses and bacteria evolve in what, you know, what scenario or what living being, because that's generally where these things incubate in living beings, Mm -hmm. did this incubate and it said, oh, no, this is great. You know, I'm not killing it. I'm not hurting it, but I'm living in it. And then it got cast off onto this comet for whatever reason. The comet comes around, discards it, and it comes down and just like kills millions of human beings because it's not, I guess, calibrated would be a term to use yeah. to a human biology. So uh, am I going to say aliens? No. But. I think it's an interesting thought, for sure. You know, this is great. And I think that the first time we talked about this story, I said that this really sounded familiar to me for a while when mm-hmm. we first started doing this. And, and I know that there have been some talk of this. Mm-hmm. Is Do you guys remember I told you there's a there's a book out there by a guy named Scott Sigler that's called Pandemic. Yeah. And it deals with aliens who distribute some kind of virus through the atmosphere mm-hmm. to then, you know, reproduce and there's all these things that happen and mm-hmm. obviously not give away the plot, but it's ob- it's a very, very similar storyline to what we've just talked about yeah. for the last 15 minutes. Yeah. 15, more like 45. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, now, now, anyway, um, yeah, no, it's entirely possible. I mean, you know, think about it. If you're an alien, you want to come down and colonize the planet, why not do a little biological warfare? Well, I mean, maybe it's, uh, you know, we're, we're making light and saying it's nefarious aliens, but Devin, you, you were explaining to me where 
comets come from? And, yeah. And, and what what is that again? Because so, I still it's one of those things that just a comet happens it. from a collision, right? I mean, all, most meteors of any size or asteroids of any size come from a planet disintegrating. Mm-hmm. Some of them are left over from the dawn of the universe, sure, but most of the time, it's you know a planet for whatever reason has just disintegrated, and sh- all of the little bits shoot off into all millions of different directions, and it turns out. There are a lot of water worlds, not in our solar system, obviously, but in our galaxy and in our universe. There it's are not these... the Kevin Costner water yeah, world, right? The one where he drinks his own pee. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, it's not those guys. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. But they're worlds that are just mostly made of water. And the theory is, is that if an asteroid large enough hits this thing, it basically splashes a lot of water into space, which I understand is like physics maybe okay there's some problems there but if it's big enough we're simplifying it'll splash some water essentially splash water into space and all of the water like molecules cling together as everybody knows so all the water kind of like comes together and freezes into this thing and shoot off into a different direction and that's essentially where a comet comes from one of the many different ways but that's one of the big theories is that it's basically just water from this like alien world that's just been splashed into space. Well, and, and I, I know, I swear, I don't know where I've, I've learned this, but isn't it the tail of a comet? We all, uh, you know, associate a comet as having a tail, mm-hmm. but the tail is not always there. It's only when the comet comes into a certain amount of heat and radiation yeah. that yeah. It starts to melt. Yeah. And that that melt or that, that melt-off is what mm-hmm. becomes the tail. The yeah, melt-off and, and then the solar wind forces it away from the sun away from the sun, which is why, you know, when it's coming towards the sun, when the tail is at its smallest, it's kind of like a tail. When it's gone around the sun and heading back, the tail is actually in front of it. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. 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 So they, and they yeah. actually, the earth is kind of in like a sweet spot of like, it's melted enough to be a tail, but not so melted that you can't see it entering our atmosphere, which mm-hmm. is pretty interesting. It's I mean, weird. The Earth isn't a lot of sweet spots. Science is weird. Science is weird. Science is weird. The thing I'm actually really interested in that I came up when I was in my, like, comet hole was that I found out that there's a comet, like a big old comet coming for us. I know. Really soon. It's in the, I'm sorry, how did you pronounce it? The cloud? The Oort's cloud? Yeah, yeah. It's in there right now. Well, no, no. It's, it's, the Oort's cloud is far away. It's, it's, it's like due here. Are you talking about the one that's due here at the end of this year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. It's, that's, it's I mean, not. No, it's it's headed this way already. I mean, because okay. yours cloud is like way out beyond Pluto. I mean, it's a long I ways away. I thought it was there. Maybe it's, it's it was ju- when this report was written. I don't know where it is now. It's probably past the orbit of Mars by now. Um. Well, so the the, the thing is, is that um, it's supposed to be at its brightest in like a really late November, early December of this year. I'm going to order some clear skies. Apparently, yeah. um, it's supposed to be within binocular view, like within the next month. Mm. You're supposed to be able to see it with binoculars. It's that big. And at its height, which is this like late November, early December area, it's in it's gonna be in the sky and it's gonna be brighter than a full moon. 
would be. That's going to be awesome. Which is pretty awesome. That's Although, cool. It's it's maybe the biggest comet that we've ever encountered. It's not gonna. It's gonna pass close enough for us to see it, but it's not gonna pass close enough for us to like have die. any kind of fear that it'll collide or that it'll have any kind of. No, all we gotta be worried about is like dying horribly from some from disease. From the bubonic you know, plague. But, yeah, but we don't have to send Bruce Willis flu. into space no. to, to, to uh, drill no. it apart. No, we don't have to do okay. that. Okay, um, well that's good. Yeah. But because he's getting old, it'll be visible. Yeah. It's always the rock. <laughs> For like four or five months to the naked eye. Yeah, no, I'm, all I'm, the way months? all the way until July. So I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to this. I really am because you know the uh, the return of Haley's comet was kind of a letdown, and then, yeah, and then, was, there, was, and then there was Kahotek, which also was a big also old letdown. a big old letdown. Yeah, yeah, I know, and so I hope this one really turns out to like live up to its name. I, I saw really Haley's do. comet. I remember when I was like. 10 or 11 and yeah, it was Mount kind of Hood. pathetic. Yeah. And for me, you know, it was my first comet that I had ever really seen. And that was, it was really awesome because we went up to Mount Hood and we were up camping and it was awesome. Yeah. But this I'm really excited about. I'm also really interested to see if some of these scientists, because the people who have been doing research on this comet theory are by and large real scientists. Oh yeah. Yeah. If they are going to take advantage of this and try and get, any kind of data from it because it, it is the biggest one and it's not one we've particularly encountered before. There has been talk. I don't know if they have enough time to, um, I don't know if there's plans to send a probe out to this one, but there yeah. have been talk, there's been talk about sending a probe out to a comet. Yeah. And actually, I think, I think NASA is working on that. It would be interesting. Well, yeah. NASA is also working on, I just saw something recently figuring out, uh, there are actually a lot of companies are now figuring out uh, in wanting to mine the asteroids. Mine the asteroids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're, Putting, they're starting to put up money to figure out how to do it. So yeah. I wouldn't be shocked if we're going to start, you know, pulling in giant space badminton nets to, to yeah. catch a comet. Well, that's and, how you yeah. do it. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, it's, it's a space badminton yeah, net. It is. Yeah. That's, that's as technical as it yeah. gets. Yeah. So, be, it'll be interesting to like, you know, I think it'll be great if we could capture some, capture some asteroids, some fairly decent ones, you know, and nudge them. It'll be a long process, but to basically nudge them into Earth orbit and then mine them. Hollow them out on the inside. Then you're using using attached rockets. You put a spin on them to generate artificial gravity. So and then you play space tennis. No, and then you have people living inside them. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. You could, you could that basically would be a turn. Cool way to go. You, could, you could totally turn these things into habitats. Yeah, you could. I, I think it'd be freaking awesome. So, um, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I was just going to ask if that's our. Theories. I was about to say we've been off topic for a while. Yeah, we kind of have been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm in. We're really falling we really back in our. Spun off that one. I'm in my I sci-fi know. nerd mode here. I uh, I like to talk about. Yeah, I'm, no, no. Yeah, uh, futurism. That, that's yeah. the that's all of the theories that I know about. Do you guys have any others? No, as far as the origins of the Spanish flu. Yes. <laughs> the frickin' Spanish, dude. <laughs> it's the last one I've got. Well, if that's all of it, and that's all we've got, ladies and gentlemen, well, I hope you uh, enjoyed today's show. This is a, a little different for us. We haven't done this before, so... Yeah, usually we solve mysteries. Today, I think we created more than we solved. Yeah, yeah. we might have, yeah. but, you know, yeah. if you like this and you enjoyed it, please let us know. You can let us know, You or if you've got theories of your own or other research you want to tell us about, go ahead and send us an email. You can email us at thinking sideways podcast at gmail.com uh there is a lot a lot of research material out there and we have so many links there's no way i can we can put them all on the site so we're going to put 
up a good number of them. But if you want to find some of the research material that we use, you can find it right on our website. That, as always, is at thinkingsidewayspodcast.com. And with that, uh, I just want to, you know, a little shout out here, a little, a little, a little plea for all of you. I'm sure among our, our listeners, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of scientists who are actually investigating stuff like this. So please call, email, whatever. And tell us what your thoughts are. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I'd, I'd love to know. I'd yeah, because yeah. this one, this one is kind of a sticky mess. Yeah, I agree. Mm, a big gooey, icky mess. I yes. know. Yeah. Mm. yeah, phlegmy mess. Yeah, phlegmy yeah. mess. I just wanted to know if I got to stop up, uh, st- stock up on like you know gas mask and aspirin. Aspirin. And, and a- Get aspirin. aspirin. Yeah, before all the right, spring. ladies and gentlemen. Well, Joe's going to go buy some aspirin. We're going to go ahead and call this show a day. We mm-hmm. uh, we appreciate it, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Mm, next Bye. week. Bye. Bye, folks. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 